How do I get to participate in these blessings? And that's the most important question we could possibly ask, isn't it? How does someone who is far away from God, with no desire even for God, someone who is guilty before God, someone who's not heading for heaven, but actually heading for an eternity separated from God, how does someone in that state participate in this verse? How is that even possible? How would you answer that? That, The question is, how, how would someone become a Christian? How would you answer that? Well, some might say, well, you become a real Christian when you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. That would be a great answer. Actually, Paul himself talks about that later on. If you go down to verse 13... He actually says to these Christians in Ephesus, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then he says, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So Paul talks about the importance there of Christian faith in the Lord Jesus. We'll get to that. And it's very clear that faith is the mechanism that connects us to these blessings. But someone else might give a different answer and go further back and say, the thing that makes someone a Christian really is what Christ has done. Because if Christ hadn't come, there'd be no possibility of anyone believing in him anyway. So the way that you become a Christian, the reason that you become a Christian is because Jesus came into this world to save people from their sins. He lived the life that we don't and can't. He died the death that we deserve. Paul speaks about that too. In verse 7, he says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Both of these reasons are glorious too. We need to have faith. Jesus needs to come and be our saviour. But Paul doesn't start there in verse 4. He goes right back to a time before Jesus had actually become a saviour. He goes right back to a time before we had any faith. And he says that the thing that is most significant and most crucial and the thing that changes everything is that God had chosen them in Christ. Verse 4, for he chose us. How do we get connected to the blessings in verse 3? The first thing Paul says, the ultimate thing before all the other secondary things, is that God, before the world was even created, chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. What Paul's saying is that God's choice of us is ultimate. There are, there are secondary reasons, but this is the great primary, ultimate reason. Why, why does it even matter for Paul to say that? Well, let, let me ask you a more personal question to make this less theoretical. Let me ask you this question. Why are you a Christian and other people are not? You know people in your families, your street. Why 
are you a Christian and some of the other people that you know are not Christians that's a bit less theoretical a bit more personal you might say well obviously I'm a nicer person than that I don't think you would but you might not that you're not nice you know your Bible's better than that you might yourself so I'm a nice person then so the issue is that you're better than other people and the reason that God has saved you is because he judged you to be better than the other people in your street if, if that's where you are I'm not sure you've understood the gospel yet so keep listening <laughs> but others might say yeah I, I know my Bible better than that and I know that, um, that I'm a sinner like everyone else but when I heard the gospel I believed it and other people didn't so what's that you were more responsive than them God saved you because of your responsiveness to him then the problem is this is why it matters the problem is that when we make something that we have done ultimate in the end in the end, what we're saying is there's something in us that distinguishes us from other people and in a sense makes us better in the final analysis than they are. Maybe you're more open. Maybe you're more humble. Maybe you are more interested, more sensitive, more honest, more willing. Whatever it is, in the end, what we're really saying when we make those kind of statements is that we're better. So my point is, if, if, if we think that when we drill right down to the very bottom that there's something in us that differentiates us from other people, that in the end will be a source of pride and superiority for us. God's choice is ultimate that means that no one can boast when Paul drills down to the bottom he always makes God the ultimate cause in fact this is why he praises and worships God so much God gets all the credit not Paul or the Ephesians in fact in chapter 2 just, just flick over the page with me because the, these words are phenomenal in, in Ephesians chapter 2, we'll get there in a couple of years, um, just over the page. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is not working, those who are disobedient. And if you think Paul was just criticising them, in verse 3 he says, all of us, including himself, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. In chapter 2, Paul is saying that we were dead, not just a little bit poorly, we were actually incapable of making any response to God at all and yet God made us alive 
with Christ. The Christian gospel, therefore, is not rehabilitation. It is resurrection. The Christian gospel is not appealing to our better natures. Christianity isn't about quite good people becoming better people. Christianity is about dead people being made alive. It is about lost people being found. This is surely one of the things that makes Christianity utterly unique among the religions of the world, isn't it? If you want to be a Muslim, you can make yourself a Muslim. Go to the mosque and do the things that Muslims do. And you'll be a Muslim. If you want to be a Buddhist, I sit on a committee in the um, local education authority and there's a retired teacher on that committee who was converted to Buddhism. He's a Buddhist. He does the things that Buddhists do. If you want to be a Buddhist, be my guest. You, you go and do the things that Buddhists do and you'll be a Buddhist. We could go on and on like that. Every religion in the world teaches that you do something to become whatever it is. Christianity teaches the exact opposite. No one can make themselves a Christian. It's not possible. You can't even want to be a Christian unless God works in your heart first. Great uh, Bible teacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, says that, um, paraphrasing this a little bit, but he, he says the Christian gospel teaches that sin has put mankind in a very bad place. And the way out of that bad place is God's plan. Sin has put mankind in a very bad place. The ultimate and distinguishing thing is God's activity, not our activity. And just in case anyone says, well, I, I do get that, and I believe that, and I believe the Bible teaches that, but I still have to have faith. If we go back to chapter 2, Paul says in verse 8, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I don't think Paul could be any clearer than that. Even the faith that we have, and we do need to have faith, we'll come back to that, even the faith we have, Paul says, it is a gift of God so that no one can boast about being better than someone else. One of the pictures that, that, I, that I have in my mind when I, when I come to this, is, is that of a skyscraper. I've, I've never had the pleasure of seeing a skyscraper being built, but I'm told when I read up on it that for, for every metre that you build above the ground, you've got to go a long way down with the foundations. Nobody ever built a skyscraper on, you know, small foundations. The hole that they dig downwards, I don't think it's as high as the skyscraper, but it's got to go down a long way for you to build high. I think that's a good way of looking at these verses here. To make a really towering structure, you have to dig down deep. And salvation is a towering structure that has very deep foundations.
foundations in the very heart of God in eternity. Paul here is digging down for us. He's striving to show us that everything that we have, all the blessings that he talks about in verse 3, they come to us ultimately from God. These verses are not designed to give us a heart attack. They're not designed to cause arguments. They're not designed to even be an intellectual defence of some extreme theology. These words are meant to be a joyful, vibrant affirmation of true confidence. If our salvation depended on us, we would only mess it up anyway, wouldn't we? Thank God that the foundations go so much deeper than that. Salvation is all of God. So that God gets all the credit. Remember that um, when we started off Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, we said right at the start, didn't we, that one of the two issues that we were worried about was a sense of people's confidence collapsing and and a sense of confusion about what the gospel actually is. Paul here is writing to to, to inspire confidence and to clear up confusion so that like him we'd be liberated as he says several times in these verses to praise God for his ultimate grace. Now, you're already probably light years ahead of me. I am well aware that this whole subject raises many questions. So, I just want to do a couple of things this afternoon. Um, First of all, I think it would be really good for us to see that Paul is not just going off on one here. I think as Christians who come to the Bible and believe it's God's word, we would take that for granted in a sense. But I want to underline that and and show that the teaching that Paul gives here is consistent with the teaching across the whole Bible. And then secondly, even though Paul doesn't do it here, because that's not his purpose here to defend um, his theology, he states it here very joyfully. But there are some difficult questions that often do arise, so I think it would be good for us, secondly, to have a look at three main questions that can arise. Not, not in a sense of answering them perfectly, but, it, but at least for us to think through some of the implications. And then we'll close by having some brief encouragements at the end, because I don't just want this to be boring. So we'll, we'll, we'll have some encouragements at the end. Okay. So first of all, and I've given you a handout for the third week running, how about that? If you haven't got one, there's some spare ones on the table at the back. Um, So what does the rest of the Bible say and teach about this whole subject? Um, Let me uh, take you to one place in the Old Testament. I've put the references up on the screen just to save time because I've got quite a few. And they're on the handout so you can look them up at home afterwards. Oh man, that's terrible, isn't it? The lighting's not good. I'll I'll read it out, okay? This is the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God chooses a people for himself, the Israelite nation. This is what God said through Moses to them in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you, and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. 
for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That's an amazing verse in the Old Testament, isn't it? Firstly, I want you to notice there that God equates choosing with affection. This is not like a mathematical equation. God equates choosing. He says, I set my affection on you. God is saying, my heart is moved. I loved you. And secondly, notice that God didn't set his affection on them because of something desirable in them. He actually goes to great lengths here to say the opposite. I didn't set my affection on you because I wanted you to be in my team, because you were like a really great super nation. You were actually pretty fragile and a bit of a mess. I think what God is saying to them here is, I loved you because I loved you. can't really say it any better than that that's what God said to them I loved you because I loved you Paul was a Jewish uh, man I think he'd have been well aware of the Old Testament and when he uses the word choose here I'm pretty sure he would have been aware of this backdrop in the Old Testament what about other New Testament writers the disciple of Jesus Peter He writes two letters in the New Testament, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. It's helpful that. In 1 Peter, he makes his little greeting at the start. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is what he said. I've missed out all the nationalities because it goes on for a long time. He says to God's elect, dot, 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 who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Did Peter believe this? that, That is how he sees the identity of the Christian believers he's writing to. They are God's chosen people. Chosen by God the Father. I wish we had more time to look at the word foreknowledge there because a lot of people do say, this is an objection, I'm going off piste here. They say, yeah, when, God, when it says in the Bible that God chose people, what it really means is that he looked into the future and he saw who would believe in him and he chose them. So he's really cho- choosing the ones that he knew would believe. But that turns it round on its, uh, on its head, doesn't it? And puts the merit into the chosen one rather than in God. The word foreknowledge here really means... It's, it's not talking about pre-knowledge in that sense. It's really talking about an intimate knowledge of someone. What, what God is saying is, I knew you beforehand and I set my love upon you. That's what foreknowledge really means. So Peter's there. This is their identity, chosen by the Father. What about Luke? In the book of Acts, which Luke wrote... Here's a couple of verses, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. This is just a little aside, a commentary on what's going on. Um, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord 
and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. What a verse that is. Just a throwaway comment at the end. Luke's understanding was that as Gentiles were becoming Christians, as they put their faith in Jesus, that was the proof that God had chosen them. They weren't chosen because they believed. They believed because they'd been appointed to eternal life by God. Very interesting. We could go to Acts chapter 16, verse 14. This is the account of Lydia. Do you remember Lydia's conversion? One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. And Luke says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Before she did something, God did something. The Lord opened her heart so that she could respond. There's other places we could go to, loads of places. Paul, um, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, says these words. I I should have written these down after reading them off there. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing verse that is. So Paul there talks about faith. He talks about them hearing and being called through the gospel. But the thing that happens before that is that God had loved them and chosen them. The things that happened in real time in history were rooted in God's prior choice of them. Notice finally here as well that Paul says that this is the reason why they should stand firm. That, I, I think that's in... Um, in the, in the, is it in the verse before or the verse after? I didn't put it up there. Paul says this is why they should stand firm. He doesn't say try your best to be strong. What he says to them is God loves you. He's chosen you so be encouraged and stand up. In other words for Paul the, this whole subject is not a matter of offence but a cause for celebration and encouragement for God's people. I was going to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and it's on your sheet there but I think for the sake of time I'll miss that one. You can read that one at home. Let's go to Jesus. Jesus is a good person to go to if we want to get a hint of good teaching. Jesus in John chapter 15 and verse 16 this is the last supper. Jesus is with his disciples the night he's betrayed he's being crucified the next day he says to them in John chapter 15 You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Could that be any more explicit? They did choose him. Jesus is saying, I chose you first. (laughs) My dad's bigger than your dad. (laughs) You did choose me. They did choose Jesus, but only because Jesus had chosen and appointed them first. We could go, and I wish we had more time to go, to the most fascinating chapter in John's Gospel. John chapter 6. 
In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds a whole crowd of people with bread. A little bit of bread. He feeds, it's a miracle. And people wonder where he's gone and they follow him across the lake. They come to Jesus and Jesus then has quite a long debate with people who are asking him who he is. The, the Jewish leaders were not particularly kind to Jesus. And they saw what had happened and they came to Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 37, all, they're talking about belief in Jesus. And Jesus says to them, all those the Father gives me will come to me. I don't, I don't know if you get the sort of implied insult in that. You, you ought to believe in me because all those that the Father gives me do that. You don't believe in me. What Jesus is saying is, the reason you don't believe, guys, is because my Father hasn't given you to me. What a shocking thing. No one else could say that. I wouldn't dare say that. But Jesus says that to them. The reason you don't believe is not because you don't get it. It's because my Father hasn't, at this point anyway, given you to me. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. If they had any doubt, that they grumbled about Jesus. They started to say, who does he think he is? He's the carpenter's son. Jesus says then later on, verse 43, stop grumbling. Stop grumbling. Stop whinging and moaning. Let me make it extra crystal clear for you. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus could have... You know, sometimes politicians make statements, don't they? And they have to retract them. And, oh, I didn't really mean that. I, let me just explain and clarify what I meant. When Jesus clarifies, he seems to make it worse. He doesn't dilute what he said, but confirms it and makes it explicit. The, re the reaction of the crowd is not good. And in John chapter 6, verse 60, John says one of the saddest verses in the Bible, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They got the band. Nosebleeds all over the place. We, we, we have no clue, Jesus, what you're talking about here. This sounds ridiculous. We're, we're, we're off. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? There are some of you who do not believe. And in verse 65, Jesus went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Well done, mate, for believing. No, no he doesn't. 
in verse 70, he says, then, then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you? It's right there. Even in his most significant proclamation of faith, Jesus' response is, that proves that I've chosen you. You wouldn't even say that if it were not for the fact that God had worked in your heart. What's the point of all this? Jesus is saying, Paul's saying, Peter's saying, that no one will come to God unless God first enables them to come. Let's say very quickly, talk about some objections. Paul doesn't do this, so we're taking liberties here with Paul's teaching. Paul just says it and expects us to worship God because of it, doesn't he? But there are some objections often raised. First of all, is it fate? Is it fate? I mean a couple of things by that. First of all, is it robotic, mathematical, and just logical? Is it fate? Well, I think, I, I, I want to say, or I want to ask you, you you've, you've read Ephesians chapter 1 a few times now. Angela read it to us. Would you say, when you read these verses, that it sounds fatalistic and mathematical to you? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We talked about the breathless worship of God that Paul indulges in here. So I I, want to say, first of all, God is not a computer, but a living being. We can't claim to understand God. We know things about God and we can know God. He's revealed himself to us, but we can't understand the mystery that God is. But we do know this, he's alive. He's not a machine. He's not an abacus or a mathematical algorithm. Here in this chapter, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, who love each other from all eternity, are working together, doing their little love dance and splashing their kindness out into this broken world. This is not a machine. This is a living, loving being. The whole point of this passage is that Paul is skipping, well he's not skipping around, he's in prison actually, but in his heart he's skipping around going, wow, God has chosen us. It's not even God has chosen me. He's saying, dear friends, God has chosen us. We don't deserve it, but friends, it's true, isn't it amazing? This is the whole heartbeat of his life. This is, for Paul, this is not just about God's sheer determination. This is about God's supreme delight. This is not robotic and mathematical. God is not a computer. He's a living being. But I mean something else by this question. Is it fate? Does this truth mean this is the objection this is how it's often put you might have heard this you might think this does this teaching mean that we don't then have free will you you had me with that question does this teaching mean that God has just decided beforehand what's going to happen and we don't have any free will 
It's, it's fate, it's deterministic. Well, let me say, this is on record, and hopefully if it records, this will go on the internet as one of our sermons. Let me say, loud and clear, nowhere does the Bible teach that we have no free will. Can I say that? Nowhere does the Bible teach that humans have no free will. What the Bible does teach is that none of us use it to choose God. Could we choose God? Is anyone stopping us from choosing God? Do we choose God? The American uh, author Tim Keller uses an illustration at this point. I'm always very, very nervous about using illustrations for this kind of truth because it's very hard for us to get our heads around. But here's the illustration he gives. I, I think this has got some merit. It's not perfect. No illustration is. Uh, Keller talks about a great big lion. Ma- imagine we had a great big lion. Aslan was here. Big man. And, and it was tea time for the lion. And so on the floor, the lion's free to move. Maybe we need a bit of a glass wall so we can see and not feel frightened. But here's the lion. And the, and the lion keeper, whoever that is, Ian Fenton, he's the lion keeper. He puts in front of the lion a bowl of porridge and a plate of raw, bleeding steak. Okay? The lion is at the front of the room here and there are two choices for the lion to make. Does the lion have free will? There's no chain saying that the lion has to do one thing or the other. There's no lid on the porridge or the steak protecting one or the other from the lion. The lion is free to eat whichever dinner the lion chooses to eat. Which one do you think the lion eats? The raw bloody meat. Yeah, well, it's not an experiment I've done, but I'm guessing that the lion, Aslan, would eat the raw bloody meat and not the porridge. Even though porridge is nice. Is the lion free? Yes. But the lion chooses according to the desires of his nature. Is he free? Yes. But there's a difference between being free and what we actually choose to do according to our desires. I, I want to say to you, this, this is a hard thing for us to get our heads around. I think this is one of the things that actually makes sin so bad that we do not do the things that we ought to do. No one's stopping us from doing those things. We're free to do those things. But our very natures have desires that are not the things we ought to desire. Now, you, you might say at this point, I don't agree with you on that. I see a lot of people who do try to be good and they, they're religious and so obviously some people do choose the porridge. Well, that's, not, that's a rubbish illustration, isn't it? Some, some people do choose and try to be good. I, I, I agree with you to a point, but I think we only do that when we agree and when we feel that we can do it. And as soon as something in our code of ethics or even our religion clashes with what we really want, we discard that and go with our true desires. 
And the question then is, what is our real master? We can live with religion, we can even want religion, as long as it agrees with us. But as soon as it means that we might lose something, or as soon as it might cost us something, we very quickly discard that and take the path that we really want. Religion, ironically, can be a way of avoiding God himself, personally, altogether. I'm going to do this and that and the other thing, but I don't actually ever want to meet him. In the end, sin is much deeper rooted than we think it is. And the issue really is that we desire most of all to be masters of our own lives. Let me read to you some other words of Paul from Romans chapter 8. Um, Verse 5 to 8. Paul says this, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful nature is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God, It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. This doesn't mean that we have no free will. It shows us how far our natures, our inner desires, are from where they ought to be. So is this fate... God is not a robot, he is a living being. And this doesn't negate human free will and responsibility. The next question is, is it fair? Now this is an even more difficult one and an important question. And I I, want to say to you, being honest as well, this objection would have a lot of merit if people deserved to be saved wouldn't it it would be monstrously unfair if everyone in the world deserved to be saved and God picked some and left others that would be a monstrous injustice so this is hard for us but the truth is that none of us actually deserve anything Let let me borrow another illustration from Tim Keller. His illustrations are so much better than mine. So let me borrow another one. And and also, if you don't agree with them, you can shoot him. And uh, and rather than me. So I can give you the page where to find them as well, if you like. Imagine you had five friends and they came in one day excited to tell you, we're going to rob a bank. We're so excited. It's been a really bad recession. We've got no money Come with us, we're going to rob a bank. There's five of them. Imagine they came rushing in. We're going to rob a bank. And you're like, guys, 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 have you been drinking? What's the matter with you? There's no way you're going to rob a bank. You're going to get caught, you'll be put into prison. This is a terrible idea. What has got into you? But they're determined and they're getting their gear together and you're trying to argue with them. Balaclavas are coming out, there's all kinds of equipment being brought out. All the while you're shouting at them to change their mind but they're dead set 
And as they're running out the door, you take drastic action with a cricket bat. And as the five of them run out the door, you catch the last two. And you knock the last two out. You drag their bodies back into the house. You tie them up. The other three go off and rob the bank, wondering where the other two mates are. They rob the bank, they get caught. And they get thrown into prison for a very long time. And they blame you. They blame you. Why didn't you smack us well Ned, with a cricket bat as well? It's your fault that we're in this stinking prison. What's the matter with this? This is so unfair. If you had just cracked us too, we wouldn't be in this mess. Do you get, it's not a perfect illustration. Do you get the point? None of the five deserved anything. The only reason they're in prison is because they were stupid and robbed a bank. They can't blame you for not hitting them on the head with a cricket bat. The two owe their freedom to you, but the three owe their prison term to no one else but themselves. Do you know the amazing thing is not that God saves some. The amazing thing is that he saves anyone. He never condemns men who deserve to be saved. There are none. But he does save some who actually ought to be condemned. God is not obliged to do anything. God would be gloriously just and fair to leave us all to our own devices and choices. The fact that he chooses to save some is a testament to his grace, not an indictment of his kindness or fairness. Some people sometimes ask the question, does, God, does then God choose some people to be condemned? The truth is that God does not create two different destinies. Listen, sin has one destiny. God has another destiny. Sin ends in death and separation from God. God's plan ends in joy and life. There's a deeper question as well. Could God save everyone? Yes, he could. Why then does he not save everyone? The Bible says that God doesn't want anyone to perish. That's true. The answer to that question is, I've got no idea. Really. But the truth is that not everyone is saved, are they? You might say, well, God is not wanting to go against people's free will, so he respects that. Well, we don't want it to look as though God is either incapable or somehow unfair or unloving. So the answer must be that God respects human free will. Well, apart from the fact that if we were left to our own free will, no one would be saved. Apart from that, it's not even a satisfying answer, is it? 
If, if that is your answer to why some people are not saved, that God's respecting their free will, it's like, whoopee-doo. Are you, are you saying that people are in hell because God respected their free will too much? That isn't a satisfying answer to the problem. I, I'd want to say, God, insult my free will and save me. That, that, that is not a satisfying... That, that's the other side. Often people claim that without thinking through the implication of that. Whichever way we look at it, there's a mystery here. There is a real mystery here. But we can never accuse God of being unfair in how he behaves. Thirdly, we've covered a lot here. Is it flat? I only chose that word because it began with F. Okay? So it fitted the other two. Is it flat? What I mean by that is many people object to some of this teaching because they think that this doctrine kills our enthusiasm for doing things. It kills evangelism. Why would anyone do any evangelism? If God's chosen, who's going to be saved? No, it doesn't kill evangelism. For one thing, stuff still needs to happen. God doesn't magically save people in a vacuum. In God's purposes, he uses people to pray and preach and witness and share the gospel. Jesus himself told his disciples to go into all the world. In other words, God provides the means to accomplish what he plans to do. It's also true that whenever these truths have been cherished, evangelism has grown and been stimulated and Christians have been all over it. Because actually, in the end, the thing that kills evangelism is the thought that it all depends on me or on us. Isn't it? It depends on our powers of persuasion, our efforts. That is a pressure that we cannot hope to bear. But when we realise that it's God's work and that God always achieves what he sets out to achieve, we've got a different basis altogether for confidence. Someone else might say it's flat because it kills my incentive to be good. It kills my incentive to be good. I I mean, I I might as well live as I like now because God's chosen me. if, If that's you, I want to say, what was your incentive before you knew this? Look at what Paul says here. We'll actually get back to the passage. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. For what? Someone shout it out. To be holy and blameless in his sight. That means at least two things, doesn't it? It means if God has chosen you to be holy, what one thing it means is that if you're using that as if you're using this as an excuse not to be holy, there's good reason to doubt whether you've become a Christian in the first place. Paul says here, God has chosen you to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's the end game. If you don't love holiness, something's gone wrong somewhere. But the the flip side of the coin, and this is an encouraging thought, is that if God has chosen you, 
He will make you holy. It might be painful. It might be a circuitous route all around the houses. But if what Paul's saying here is true, God has chosen you before the creation world to be holy and blameless inside, he'll do it. Maybe it would be better to cooperate with him than to fight him, if that's true. Why do we do the things we do? If, if we think that this teaches us to, as an excuse for sin, I think it really means that our incentive for doing good things before we knew this was fear, not love. I want to get into this over the next few weeks, on and off, as we go through these verses, but the great truth of Christianity is this. We will never be able to be truly good until we realise that we can't and don't have to earn God's love. While ever we are frightened of him and trying to earn his favour, we're trusting in something else, our own efforts, and not him. God doesn't want rule keepers. He wants, he's not making slaves, he's making children. John Stott, famous Christian writer, says this truth is three things. It is God's revelation, not human speculation. It leads to holiness rather than being an excuse for sin. And it leads to humility rather than being a ground to boast. I did say at the start it might give you the bends. He did have a fair health warning. And I'm sorry if you feel like you've got the bounce. Paul here is looking at the whole issue of salvation from God's perspective. The ultimate first cause in anyone coming to Christ is God. There are other secondary things that happen, but this is where it begins. Sometimes, I have to confess to you, that I'm very, very tempted to ignore this truth because of the reaction it causes. I've been very nervous about preaching this message today because the last time I preached on this passage I almost got fired and several people left the church. And it caused me great pain and many tears and it made me think very, very carefully about whether I was interpreting the Bible correctly nearly 15 years ago I don't like conflict much um, but the reason I want to open this up is because I really do have a deep conviction that this matters enormously these truths have pastoral power and I can tell you that they have been, these truths have been some of the sweetest and most comforting truths that I've known in my own Christian life and my heart's desire is that all of us would be captivated by the free, undeserved, unmerited and eternal love of God. The reason Paul is writing here is not to cause an argument but to encourage the hearts of true Christian believers. 
The Bible teaches that God is always ahead of us. One writer puts it like this, God is not a chess player who makes his next move only after he's seen the last move of his opponent. God isn't playing chess. He's before us. His plan is the ultimate plan. And another writer says this, to say that God's choosing takes place before the creation of the world indicates that God's choice was due to his own free decision and love which were not dependent on circumstances or human merit. To affirm this is to give Christians the assurance that God's purposes for them are of the highest good. Let me finish. Every one of us longs to know a love that is secure. Every one of us wants to be able to face down our fears and anxieties. Every one of us longs for ultimate security. Every one of us needs resources to help us to stop being judgmental of other people. Every one of us needs to be equipped to handle suffering when it inevitably comes into our lives. Every one of us needs the unifying power of a story that is much bigger than just you and me. Whether things ultimately depend on God or ultimately depend on us really matters. There are rich resources here that will enable us all to face these kind of issues. One writer says to accept the depth in the depth of our being that we are chosen by God is the antidote for our insecurity, our neurotic fears, our striving to be accepted and our self-depreciation. Maybe you've seen internet memes like these. Pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. Have you seen those? Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one. There's a few there. Pick me, pick me, pick me. Oh man, to be playing football at school and always be the last one to get picked. Pick me, pick me, please pick me. Listen, God has picked you out. Not because you qualify, but because knowing all about you, he was moved in his heart to set his love upon you from before the foundations of the world being laid. He loves you because he loves you. Wherever we find love that depends on us, there's always a danger that we could lose it by doing something stupid. But with God, it all depends on him. This is the great foundation of confidence that we have. We were dead and God has made us alive. We were lost and God came to find us. We deserve nothing. But in eternity in the past, he chose us. We were outside and he brought us in. We were unclean and he made us pure. To God, to God, be all the glory. Amen.